everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And uh, man, do we have a huge news show this week. You know, when we do the interviews, they're usually I usually split them over a couple weeks. So that usually means by the time we get to the next news show, there's been at least three weeks worth of material building up. And there's been there's just so many things. I had to like really pick and choose what to cover. And there's still a lot to cover. I'm going to talk about a new Outlook phishing scam that looks really, really believable. And I'll kind of walk you through that and tell you how to pick it apart. Tell you about yet another emergency Microsoft Windows patch. We'll talk about how Jack Daniels was hacked. We'll go over the Google outage really quick. We'll talk about the Weather Channel and how uh, it just settled a lawsuit about selling your location data. And then we'll talk about how the Secret Service and other government agencies are buying your location data. We're going to talk about an interesting study having to do with honeypots and uh, phone numbers. And we'll explain all that in a minute. And then, as I promised, we're going to talk about some DEF CON and Black Hat news. There wasn't as much big stuff this year as there maybe has been in the past, but I picked a couple stories to, to talk about from that. And then I also promised last week or recently that we would talk about this whole TikTok kerfuffle and also the epic battle between Apple and Epic uh, over the Fortnite game and <laughs> Apple's policies for collecting revenue and so on and so forth. It's, it's a mess. We'll get into that, too. And then, of course, I will have the tip of the week. I'm going to recommend another tool for you that you may or may not have heard of uh, that could be quite handy. Uh, real quick, though, before we do that, a quick shout out to my local DC 919 group. Uh, that's a local DC stands for DEF CON. 919 is the area code. And these are sort of like uh, little local uh, little local hacker slash cybersecurity groups that get together and do fun stuff. And uh, met a lot of those folks today. I'm, uh, I was actually been a member for a while, but I'm just kind of dialing up my dialing up my interest again in, in doing some cybersecurity and some uh, ethical hacking. So uh, great talking with those guys today. And uh, you might, if you're interested at all in getting into cybersecurity, uh, it's really something that you could do without any formal degree, which is one of the kind of the cool things about hackerdom, I guess. And, it, and, and we should also just clarify, hacking and hackers tends to be a pejorative term in a lot of uses today, but it's really not. I mean, and I think I've said this before, but I mean, hacker really is just, it's kind of a mentality. It's a lifestyle. It's wanting to really figure out how something works and see if you can get it to do something else. And obviously one of the implications for doing something like that would be to compromise computer systems. But, you know, on the other side of the things, they hire hackers to fix those bugs and, you know, find and fix those bugs as well. So if you are interested in that, there are probably DC groups all around. And you might look also for uh, B-sides conferences. These are kind of local spinoffs of uh, of the DEF CON conference. This happens in Vegas every year, the huge hacker conference. There's actually usually lots of local resources if you're interested in uh, getting into that stuff. So uh, check your meetup.com, check, uh, check for a local DC group, check for a B-sides conference. They're all very low key and very cheap and a lot of fun. And one more, uh, one more quick recommendation. If you would really, if this interests you at all, um, actually, honestly, even if you think it doesn't interest you, I would like to recommend a documentary called Code 2600. It's about hacker and hacker culture and kind of how it developed. If you look at the trailer, it kind of looks like this melodramatic hackers are out to take over the world thing, which don't trust the trailer. There's it's certainly like the first half of the movie or so is kind of the history of hacking. And it really kind of gets to the core of of what hacker culture is is about and where it originated and I think really the true meaning of the of the hacker term. And there's also honestly just some just some really interesting stuff in the in that documentary. You can get it uh, for free on Amazon Prime. Uh, you may be able to find it elsewhere, but uh, if you got a little extra time, check that out. All right, so much to get to. Let's uh let's get into the news. First up, I was reading an article on uh, Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog, and uh, they have a little warning article about a recent Outlook.com or Outlook Microsoft Exchange, I guess, phishing scam that looks pretty believable. And uh, they wrote a long article, and I would often read to you from these articles, but we've got so much to cover today, I'm just going to kind of uh, go over what this thing looks like so you can be prepared for it and talk a little bit about what's going on here uh, that you need to be watching out for. So the form of this email, unlike, you know, you might see a lot of phishing scams where, 
you know, it's from eBay or your bank or Apple saying, you know, there's a problem with your account. If you don't fix it now by clicking on this link, bad things are going to happen. Uh, maybe it's the IRS saying there's going to be legal proceedings against you if you don't resolve this, yada, 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 scare tactics, right? Um, this one is a little more subtle. It's, it looks, it's more, uh, it looks like it's made to look like an automated email from a security system. Uh, and if you're at a company, it might look like it came from your company's IT department. And it just says, uh, important notice, fix incoming email issues. And uh, it looks like it comes from, you know, Microsoft Exchange. It says, you know, incoming messages for it. It gives your email address, could not be delivered. And it has this little official looking bar graph thing that says, you know, action required, fix email issues below. It, you know, spout some data about how long this has been happening and the messages are being rejected. Then it says to fix, recover, and prevent further rejection of emails by our server, connect to your company-assigned OWA portal securely below. And it gives you a link. Uh, OWA being Outlook Web Access. So where you at work, if you're uh, probably using, you know, Microsoft Outlook, the application, uh, to get your email, this is directing you to the web version of Outlook and asks you to log into your Outlook account. So it pre presents you with the typical username and password. And so what you might think with this is, oh, okay, there's been some sort of a weird security glitch. I got to go clear it up. Uh, and, you know, you click the link. If you're listening to this program for long enough, and I'm sure your IT departments have been doing this too, they've warned you not to click on stray links. Well, this one looks pretty darn official. And, you know, if you study the link itself, you know, it's HTTPS slash portal dot blah, 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 slash OWA, you know, it looks kind of official. But the link actually takes you to a phishing site that looks just like the regular Outlook web access login page. But of course, you're giving this malicious website your Outlook credentials. And in many cases, for people that work at big companies, your, your Outlook credentials are your master credentials that you use to access all of your company uh, online websites and tools. So beyond, you know, warning you about this particular uh, scam going on right now, I wanted to kind of cover, you know, one of the things you can sort of do to peek under the covers here. And that is, so you look at this link and it looks like a legitimate link, but you should know by now that just whatever that link says it is, is not doesn't necessarily mean that is what it is. When you're creating these links and these emails, you have the text that you show, and then you have the actual link that it goes to. And if you just post a naked address, then those two things are the same thing. Microsoft Outlook will convert the text, you know, HTTPS, whatever, into a link so that when you click on it, you go there, which is what this appears to be. Um, but if you actually, in the many cases, you can hover your mouse over that link without clicking it, uh, and it will usually pop up a little a little tooltip thing that will show you what that link really is. So in this case, on this particular scam, if you had done that, you would see the links are not the same. It is not that link is not what it purports to be. Okay, that's simple. Unfortunately, it's actually not that easy. Uh, you can you can through some magic, and Google does this, and I'm going to explain that in a second. You can actually with some special JavaScript and whatever in the web browser, you can actually even make the hover over link lie to you. And here's, here's an interesting way to, uh, to see an example of that, and it's something good to understand. So when you're using the Google Chrome browser and you do a Google search, you get a list of you know, results, search results. And every one of those results has a link you click to go to that search result. Well, of course, you're, you're in Google Chrome. So Google owns the browser and not only just the search. Uh, and because you're in Chrome, they have all sorts of ways that can actually track which, what you searched for, which of those links you actually chose to follow, etc. But on other browsers, let's say ooh, Firefox or Safari, uh, that don't play <laughs> play that game and don't uh, necessarily do these things for Google, they have to do something different. And what they do under the covers is they actually redirect you through a Google site with a bunch of information before they then eventually send you to the actual site. Unfortunately, you can't tell that by just hovering your mouse over the link because it will still tell you that it's going to one place when it's really going to someplace else first. And here's how you can pick that apart. So on Firefox or Safari, or um, I guess presumably Edge, maybe not, um, but if you if you right-click on that link instead of just clicking on it, left-clicking, right-click, there should be an option to copy the link or copy the link location. And if you then take that copied link, go somewhere else into a text document uh, or whatever and paste that link, you will see there's a whole lot more going on there. Now, if you've got certain privacy plug plugins installed, they will fix that for you and remove that. I actually had a hard time proving this to myself because of the privacy plugins I had did fix that. I'm like, well, that's not working. Uh, so I actually had to go to Safari, where I, I, which I don't use very often and didn't have plugins installed to, to see this work. But what you'll see is this massive 
link with all sorts of information. And it starts out HTTPS colon slash slash www.google.com, no matter what you click on. Uh, so in that, there's a whole bunch of parameters that it sends along with the actual web address that you want to eventually get to. So really what this means is you're funneling all your requests through Google. So even if you're not using a Google browser, Google could still track which links you picked, where you came from, what your search query was that led to that link, uh, and all sorts of information. And this is getting a little technical, but if you've ever looked at a web address and see these really long, nasty things with a bunch of ampersands and equals and things like that in it, those are all parameters. And the ampersand symbol, the and symbol, separates all the parameters into key value pairs. And then there's like a key equals value. Uh, so if you break one of these things up, you'll see there's all sorts of stuff in there, including what query, what your query was that got to that link, and eventually what link you want to follow. And that's all a bunch of other weird stuff. But uh, you might notice there's a VED uh, parameter. That's, I don't know what that stands for, but there's actually uh, marketing companies out there that have reverse engineered that to figure out how to decode that really nasty looking string with that. That's actually more information that Google has encoded uh, and is trying to send so they can learn more about you and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, long, long story short, beware of this particular new phishing campaign, be on the lookout for that, but also uh, just some interesting ways for you to find out what's really going on and why you can't always trust the link, even when you hover your mouse over it uh, as to where that will end up. And actually I'll give you a, a hint uh, and our tip of the week that might help with that. Next up, real quick, there's not much to say here. Microsoft has yet another emergency patch. Uh, it should have gone out in their regular Patch Tuesday, uh, which is their monthly shipment of patches. I think last this one was the biggest, last Tuesday's was the biggest patch ever, which replaced last month, which was the which was then the biggest patch ever. It's, I think they've been breaking the record three months in a row now for how many different vulnerabilities these patches are fixing. So the Really, the only thing to say here is just make sure you're keeping up to date because there are some nasty bugs in Windows that are getting fixed, but you have to make sure that you're getting your operating system updated. All right, next. I found this interesting. Uh, I guess because who the target was. But Jack Daniels was hacked. It's actually a, a, their larger parent company called Brown Foreman, um, which you may have never heard of. But let me uh, let me read this article from Naked Security. U.S. hard liquor giant Brown Foreman is the latest high-profile victim of ransomware criminals. Even if the company's name doesn't ring a bell, some of its products are well-known to spirits drinkers worldwide. Brown Foreman is the multi-billion dollar business that owns Jack Daniels Whiskey, Finlandia Vodka, and other global brands. It's a multi-billion dollar business headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky, a U.S. state that's famous for American whiskey, better known as bourbon. And you can see why today's big-money ransomware crooks might go after a company of that size and sort. According to business media site Bloomberg, which claims to have received an anonymous tip-off from the crooks behind the attacks, the ransomware crooks involved are the infamous Revil, or I can never pronounce this, this is so weird, Sodinokibi? S-O-D-I-N-O-K-I-B-I. -I. I don't know where that name came from, but I guess that's the same name for the same hacker group. Going on, the article says, The Revil crew, and that's spelled R-E-V-I-L, make up one of what you might call a new wave of ransomware operators who practice three-stage attacks that end in double-barrel blackmail. First, they break into a victim's network and scope it out. During this reconnaissance, the crooks will typically work their way up to sysadmin level access, map out all the clients and servers on the network, search out where online backups are kept, locate or introduce powerful system admin tools that they can use later to assist in the attack, and reconfigure or turn off system security settings to give them the broadest reach possible. Sometimes they'll even launch mini-attacks with trial samples of malware as a way to probe your defenses and find out which attack techniques are most likely to succeed. Second, they exfiltrate, which is a fancy word for steal, as much corporate data as they can get their hands on, and the Brown Foreman attack, in which the attackers claim to have purloined one terabyte of data as part of the attack, Bloomberg says that it received links to a website where the crooks revealed proof of the data breach by listing sample files going back more than 10 years. And then third, they encrypt as many files on the network as possible using a scrambling algorithm for which they alone have the key. The crooks typically copy the malware program across the network first so that when they kick off the encryption process, it runs in parallel on all your devices, thus bringing maximum disruption in minimum time. By perpetrating data breaches up front, before unleashing the file scrambling component, the crooks now have a double-barreled weapon of criminal demand. You're no longer being extorted to pay for the crooks to do something, namely to send you a set of decryption keys, 
but also being blackmailed into bribing the crooks not to do something, namely not to go public with your data. Early ransomware had more in common with kidnapping, though with jobs at stake rather than the victim's life. The theory was that if you paid up and the crooks released a working decryption tool, you not only got your data back, but also quite clearly ended the power that the criminals had over you. For the crooks to ransom your data again, and sadly this does happen, they'd need to break into your network again and essentially start from scratch, assuming that you'd worked out how they got in before and closed the holes that they used last time. But today's ransomware is turning into old school out and out blackmail. The crooks promise to delete the data they already stole and thereby quote unquote prevent your ransomware incident turning into a publicly visible data breach, but you have no way of knowing whether they will keep their promise. Worse still, you have no way of knowing whether the crooks can keep their promise, even if they intended to. For all you know, the data they took illegally could already have been stolen from them. Now, this was actually a really long article. I just wanted to cover that part first because I find that the most interesting part, and, and we've been talking about this on the show as well, and that is that ransomware used to be the kind of thing where as long as you had really good backups of your data, uh, you were okay. And, that, and it used to be that the ransomware guys would go after, you know, mom and pop, whoever they could get their hands on, you know, one single computer and charge 300 bucks. And if you, you know, if your computer, your home computer got infected, but you had really good backups, then you could just blow it off and go out your merry way and reinstall your files uh, and, and forget about it. But now uh, they've decided, well, let's, instead of doing this onesie twosie shotgun kind of a thing, let's actually do some serious reconnaissance, go after these really big companies with really deep pockets and not only, you know, find a way to massively encrypt all of the data on as many different servers within the company as possible, but also pull as much of that data out first so that you could also hold that data for a ransom as well. So it's not just enough about, you know, so even if the company had really great backups and had some way in which to quickly restore all the computers with that data and clean those computers in such a way to make sure that they're not going to be vulnerable again, you're still not able to get out of the payment because they are holding your data for ransom as well. They're, they're going to give that up, probably proprietary secrets, maybe some, you know, maybe internal communications that you wouldn't want to get out. So you even, even if you do have good backups, you'll still have to pay. And once we're talking companies like this, the ransom's good and get into the millions. Uh, I didn't get to go through the rest of this article uh, with you, but uh, later it does say that they were, um, I think the demand was $10 million. And often these things are negotiable, believe it or not. You can uh, you can negotiate these down to, you know, three or four million. But nevertheless, it's obviously a big payday. Uh, and actually, the point of this article was uh, that there's the only thing that we can do about this as a society is just kind of have a gentleman's agreement amongst us that if these companies stand on principle and decide not to pay, which, you know, let's face it, if they do pay, not only they're encouraging other people to keep doing this, but they're actually funding the next attack. So if they're in a position where they can do that and stand up and say, no, we won't pay, and, but the bad guys then turn around and release that data, we just have to kind of agree not to look at it, not use it. If we find it, delete it. Don't use it, no matter how tempting it might be just to look at it. Don't let them win. Now, I don't, <laughs> I'm not naive enough to believe that that's really practical, but that's what the article was saying. All right, moving on real quick. A uh, few noticed a Google outage last Friday. Uh, you're not alone. They actually were having some trouble, so it's not just you. Uh, Google said that it affected several things like um, uh, Gmail sending issues, uh, Google Meet recording issues, creating files in Google Drive, some file uploads and attachments, posting message in Google Chat, adding new pages, and so on. Uh, some other people actually said YouTube uploads were uh, being affected as well. So anyway, supposedly all the fixes are in. By the time you hear this, it shouldn't be happening anymore. But if you did notice it, you're not alone. All right, now I've got a couple articles about location data. And we've talked about that several times from a privacy aspect. Um, and iOS, Apple's iOS has got a great new feature coming up in iOS 14 that will let you limit the amount of location data you share. Previously, currently, you've got the option to not share your location data at all. Uh, share it all the time, which I would recommend you don't do or only share that data when the app is in the foreground. In other words, it's the app you're looking at on your phone right now. It's not in the background. But as you can see with things like weather apps, if you want to be notified about a tornado or something coming or imminent rain, you kind of have to let the weather app always know where you are. And until iOS 14, that was a very precise GPS location. But in iOS 14, Apple's going to let you uh, fudge that number and just give them a broad sense of where you are. I think it's a, either a 5-mile square area or a 10-mile square area. 
anyway, so uh, that's coming. But here's a couple articles that have to do with this that will help explain why this is important. So first off, the Weather Channel. Let me read this article from AP News. That's uh, Associated Press. The operator of the Weather Channel mobile app has agreed to change how it informs users about its location tracking practices and the sale of personal data as part of a settlement with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office, officials said Wednesday. City Attorney Mike Fower, Fewer, F-E-U-E-R, I'm going to say Fower, alleged in a 2019 lawsuit that app users were misled when they agreed to share their location information in exchange for personalized forecasts and alerts. Instead, the lawsuit claimed users were unaware that they had surrendered personal privacy when the company sold their data to third parties. Fower announced the settlement Wednesday with the app's operator, TWC Product and Technology LLC, the own, and owner, IBM Corporation. The app's disclosure screens were initially revised after the lawsuit was filed, and future changes that will be monitored by the city's attorney's office are planned. And this is a quote from Fower at a news conference. He says, quote, users will now clearly know that they have the choice to provide access to their locations. It shows that we don't have to sacrifice our privacy for things of value, unquote. IBM bought the app along with the digital assets of the weather company in 2015 for $2 billion, but did not acquire the weather channel seen on TV, which is owned by another company. The app advertises that it has more than 50 million users. Previously, Fower said 80% of users agreed to allow access to their location data because disclosures of how the app uses the geolocation data were buried in a 10,000-word privacy policy and not revealed when they downloaded the app. Although the settlement does not require it, IBM has agreed to donate $1 million worth of technology to the Los Angeles County and the city to help with contact tracing and data storage during the coronavirus ep- epidemic, Fower said. So, a couple things I want to draw your attention to. First, obvious one, well, maybe a few things. The obvious one is that all these apps that are asking for your data, they're probably free, and, and but they've got to make money somehow, right? There's engineers and all th- sorts of things that you need to pay to support these things, create and support these things. And if they're free, then you're paying somehow, and that somehow is with your data. Now, I also want to go back to this quote from uh, the attorney the, at this news conference, and he, let me read this again. He says, users will now clearly know that they have the choice to provide access to their locations, unquote. So realize that all that's really saying is they're not preventing them from using, from selling your location to third parties. They're just saying you could just not give them a location, which, you know, on a weather app, you could do that, right? You could actually enter the city that you want weather for, uh, and it would give you that information. You may not even be in that city. But of course, if you're traveling and you want, if you want the weather where you're at, that requires giving them your location or constantly updating the city for which you want data, which is not really practical. So... What kind of irks me about all this is, is it's not about your privacy, really. It's about, it is about transparency. So at least they're trying to make sure that you're aware that when you do this, they, I, I guess, I'd be interested to see, I didn't see in the article what the, what the actual new permissions uh, request is. You know, does it actually come up and say, I need your location. And if you give me your location, I will sell this to third parties. I'm sure it's probably something mundane or euphemistic, like, you know, we will use your location to provide a better customized experience or whatever. But what it doesn't say is, why don't they, why don't they just give you the option to only use the location for your benefit and not theirs? That's the toggle I want. And of course, that may mean I need to pay for the app. And if that's the case, I'm perfectly good with that. But I know a lot of other people probably aren't. So, you know, at least I guess it's better now that they're being transparent. That's the first step. All right, next up, a little more disturbing article, and this is from Vice.com, uh, owned by Motherboard, uh, or associated with Motherboard. I'm not sure what the relationship is, but anyway, it's another rather disturbing article about your privacy and your, your right to privacy. So let me read uh, a little bit from this article. The Secret Service paid for a product that gives the agency access to location data generated by ordinary apps installed on people's smartphones, an internal Secret Service document confirms. The sale highlights the issue of law enforcement agencies buying information, and in particular location data, that they would ordinarily need a warrant or a court order to obtain. This contract relates to the sale of Locate X, a product from a company called Babel Street. In March, tech publication Protocol reported that multiple government agencies signed millions of dollars worth of deals with Babel Street after the company launched its Locate X product. Multiple sources told the site that LocateX tracks the location of devices anonymously using data harvested by popular apps installed on people's phones. And I'll just stop right there and just guess, I don't think the article actually says this, but my guess is that LocateX probably provides an interesting GPS location 
you know, SDK, Software Development Kit, that it provides to app makers, probably for free, with the understanding that it will be exfiltrating, it will be taking your location data for themselves as well and using it for their own purposes. All right, back to the article. It says, Protocol found public records showed that U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, purchased Locate X. Now, that sounds weird. I'm not sure that they actually purchased the company. I'm, I'm guessing that's a typo. I think purchased their product. But anyway, one former Babel Street employee told the publication that the Secret Service used the technology. Now, the document obtained by Motherboard corroborates that finding. And by the way, this is an expurgated version. I've uh, trimmed this out a little bit. So some of these may sound a little bit odd uh, as I'm reading just bits and pieces of this. But anyway, there's a quote from Senator Ron Wyden, who's a big privacy advocate. So his quote is, As part of my investigation into the sale of Americans' private data, my office has pressed Babel Street for answers about where their data comes from, who they sell it to, and whether they respect mobile device opt-outs. Not only has Babel Street refused to answer questions over email, they won't even put an employee on the phone, unquote. A myriad of smartphone apps, from weather predictors to games to flashlights, collect location data. Sometimes this may provide some benefit to the app's operation itself, such as being able to route directions from a user's current location, but many of these apps often sell that information as well to data brokers or other companies to incorporate it into their own products. Government agencies are increasingly at the end of that location data chain. In February, the Wall Street Journal reported that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and other agencies bought an app-based location data product from a different firm called Ventel. Senator Wyden's office then found the Internal Revenue Service was also a Ventel customer. Law enforcement agencies typically require a warrant or a court order to compel a company to provide location data for an investigation. Many agencies have filed so-called reverse location warrants to ask Google to hand over information on what Android devices were in a particular area at a given time, for example. But an agency does not need to seek a warrant when it simply buys the data instead. Senator Wyden is planning legislation that would block such purposes. And one more quote from him, he says, It is clear that multiple federal agencies have turned to purchasing America's data to buy their way around Americans' Fourth Amendment rights. I'm drafting legislation to close this loophole and ensure that the Fourth Amendment isn't for sale, unquote. So I think that pretty well speaks for itself. Uh, I'll move on to the next story. And this one has to do with uh, a honeypot. And before I get into this, I, would, I, I thought it was kind of a good time to explain what a honeypot is. Uh, so this is often used by security researchers to trap or at least investigate hackers. Uh, so they put out basically a juicy target, a honeypot, something that would attract <laughs> hackers. Uh, you know, maybe it looks like it has a bunch of juicy data on it or... Uh, Maybe it looks like it might provide access to some interesting uh, computers and servers, but in reality, it's a fake. And what they want to do is they want to see who comes up to it, how they try to hack it, and perhaps maybe figure out who who it was that was trying to hack it. Okay, so that in mind, uh, let me read this article from ZDNet. And again, this is a little bit uh, expurgated, so this is my Reader's Digest summary. It says... In an award-winning paper presented at the Usenix Security Conference this week, and I guess that would be last week to you, a team of academics from North Carolina State University, one of my local universities, presented a list of findings from operating a massive telephony honeypot for 11 months for the sole purposes of tracking, identifying, and analyzing the robocalling phenomenon in the U.S. NCSU researchers said they ran 66,606 telephone lines. That's an odd number. Well, it's an even number, but it's strange. (laughs) 66,000 telephone lines between March 2019 and January 2020, during which time they said to have received 1,481,201 unsolicited calls, even if they never made their phone numbers public via any source. The research team that they usually received an unsolicited call every 8.45 days, but most of the robocall traffic came in sudden surges they called storms that happened at regular intervals suggesting that robocallers operated using a tactic of short burst and well-organized campaigns. In total, the NCSU team says it tracked 650 storms over 11 months, with most storms being the same size. But the research team also said that not all calls during the storm were from robocallers themselves and that a large chunk of calls also came from quote-unquote real persons. And I put the quotes in there. You'll understand why in a minute. Researchers believe this happened because, at the same time of the storm, the robocalling operation had been using a technique called caller ID spoofing to hide their real phone numbers and pass as real persons. If victims of a robocalling campaign missed the call and called back the spoofed number, they'd eventually end up calling the research team's honeypot telephone numbers. But the NCSU team also recorded a 10% sample, or about 150,000 of the robocalls they received, 
which they later analyzed using audio processing tools to determine the source and content of the robocall itself. Academics said they detected 2,687 unique robocalling campaigns, with the largest ones promoting student loans, health insurance, Google search promotion services, and social security scams. However, the research team's biggest finding was that after answering 1.5 million robocalls across 66,000 phone numbers, researchers said they didn't get a spike in subsequent robocalls. And this is a quote from the research uh, papers that said, quote, news reports and regulatory agencies recommend phone users to avoid answering calls from unknown numbers to reduce the number of robocalls. Surprisingly, we found that answering phone calls does not necessarily increase the number of robocalls you would receive. Phone users should be cautious when you get a call from an unknown number. However, occasionally answering an unsolicited phone call does not mean you will receive more robocalls, unquote. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. First of all, we get to introduce the concept of a honeypot. Second, we got a little bit of insight into how these robocall uh, storms work. And I did see they had a graph, which, of course, you can't see, uh, that did show kind of the frequency of these things. And it was extremely periodic. It was very, they were almost all the same size as far as how many calls. They were almost all equally distance apart. Uh, so it's very methodical. But I thought it was interesting because this certainly is, you know, maybe now we could call it a, an urban legend or an wives, old wives' tale that, you know, don't answer the call because the, the traditional thinking is if you answer the call, now they know that phone number is real. Now they know that you're dumb enough to actually pick up a call you don't know the number. And so they're going to try again. Apparently, that's not always the case. All right, moving on. Uh, I did promise you some uh, news stories from DEF CON and Black Hat. Those are the two huge uh, international hacker conferences. There's, there's, there's many hacker conferences, but uh, these two held at almost the exact same time in Las Vegas every year are, are really, uh, really the big ones. And a lot of researchers and hackers save up their, their best ones, their biggest revelations for these uh, to get the most splash. Now, this year, they were both virtual, of course, due to COVID. So maybe that did flavor a little bit of, uh, of what got released. There wasn't quite as many big stories, but there were a couple here that I want to draw your attention to. First one is from Ars Technica, uh, and it has to do with, actually, both of these have to do with Android security vulnerabilities. And it's I, because I picked Android, I'm not just picking on Android uh it does have their problems. I've said that many times. You know, I'm a Mac fanboy, so I, I do recommend iPhones. But I'm not the only security guy that recommends iPhones. Uh, almost every security person I've ever, ever heard rec make the recommendation definitely prefers uh, the security of an iPhone over an Android phone. But neither one of them are perfect. But Android has some specific issues which these stories will highlight. So let me read the first one. Four major security holes in the Qualcomm chips which power modern Android devices have left as many as 900 million users vulnerable to a range of attacks. According to Israeli-based security firm Checkpoint, the flaws, dubbed Quadrooter, found in the firmware which governs the chips could allow potential attackers to, quote, trigger privilege escalations for the purpose of gaining root access to the device, unquote, using malware, which wouldn't require special permissions, allowing it to pass under suspicious users' radars. And just I'll stop real quick. Privilege escalation and root access. So your smartphone is a computer. And just like your computer, if you even if you don't know your computer does this, they have levels of permissions. You can set up different sorts of accounts on your computer that allow certain levels of access. And the God access, the 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 highest access level on most computing systems is what we call root. So often what these things will do, and on phones, your apps, you, you as a person don't have root access, but these uh, malware things manage to get into your phone and figure out a way to trick the phone into giving it higher level access or root access, which really means now that the malware can do whatever it wants. Okay, back to the article. It says, Qualcomm makes chips for the majority of the world's phones, holding a 65% share of the market. Most of the major recent Android devices are expected to be affected by the flaw, including... BlackBerry Priv, BlackPhone 1 and BlackPhone 2, Google Nexus 5X, Nexus 6, and Nexus 6P, HTC One, HTC M9, HTC 10, the LG G4, G5, uh, and V10, the new Moto X by Motorola, OnePlus One, and the OnePlus Two, and the OnePlus Three. OnePlus is the is the make, and it's spelled out OnePlus, and then the numbers for the model numbers. Uh, Samsung Galaxy S7 and the S7 Edge, and the Sony Xperia Z Ultra. Three of the four holes have already been patched, with the solution for the fourth on the way. However, most users are at the mercy of their handset manufacturers if they want these patches applied. Owners of Google's Nexus devices have already had patches pushed to their phones. 
but other manufacturers have historically been less interested in patching flaws found in their devices after release. According to Checkpoint, which revealed its findings over the weekend at the DEF CON security conference in Las Vegas, quote, the vulnerabilities can give attackers complete control of devices and unrestricted access to sensitive personal and enterprise data on them, unquote. Since the vulnerable drivers are pre-installed on devices at the point of manufacture, they can only be fixed by installing a patch from the distributor or carrier. Distributors and carriers issuing patches can only do so after receiving fixed driver packs from Qualcomm. This situation highlights the inherent risks in the Android security model. Critical security updates must pass through the entire supply chain before they can be made available to end users. Once available, the end users must then be sure to install these updates to protect their devices and data, unquote. Okay, so yeah, the basic, the basic problem there with the Android ecosystem uh, is that unless you own a Google-made phone, uh, you own a phone made by somebody not Google. Uh, and the wireless carriers, you know, Verizon, AT&T, Orange, whatever your particular service provider may be, both the device manufacturers and your cellular characters get, carriers get a say in when and how software updates are provided to you, the end user. So that means that even if Google is Johnny on the spot and gets these things fixed right away and publishes those fixes for Android, in many cases, those still have to go through the cell phone manufacturer for vetting and testing, and then through the cell phone carrier for vetting and testing. And there's nothing that says they have to let them through at all. Honestly, in most cases, if the phone is old enough, they would rather you buy a new phone. Now, Google's been doing better about that. Android's been getting more partitioned so that the security portions of the operating system can be directly updated by Android and bypassing all that. But it's still, it's still a problem, and it's still one of the ways that iPhone, because it's a completely walled garden owned soup to nuts by Apple, makes it easier for them to quickly get out software patches. All right, and next up, another article about Android, uh, this one from the other conference. And uh, this is from CNET, it says... Keeping your Android device safe from malware is difficult enough as it is, but it's an entirely different threat when the harmful apps come with your device. Android's open-source operating system allows for more affordable alternatives for millions of people, but it also opens the door for hackers to sneak in prepackaged malware. Pre-installed malware has been discovered on more than 7.4 million Android devices, which had the ability to take over devices and download apps in the background while committing ad fraud, researchers working for Google found. While major Android partners like Samsung or LG, or as well as Google's own Pixel devices, are likely safe from these kinds of threats, budget phone makers who rely on third-party software to save a few bucks could be vulnerable. Attackers offer genuine services and hide the malware in the apps they provide. According to Maddie Stone, a security researcher at Google's Project Zero and previously a tech lead on the Android security team. And this is a quote from her. She says, if malware or security issues can make its way as a pre-installed app, then the damage it can do is greater. And that's why we need so much reviewing, auditing, and analysis. Stone, who discussed her research at the Black Hat Security Conference in Las Vegas on Thursday, and of course this was written some time ago, sees pre-installed malware as a threat that security researchers often aren't focused on, since atten attention is usually directed towards malware that victims download on their own. But unlike downloaded malware, pre-installed malware is harder to find and even more difficult to get rid of. Quoting Stone, if malware or security issues can make its way as a pre-installed app, then the damage it can do is greater. And that's why we need so much reviewing, auditing, and analysis. Unquote. Because Apple has full control over its iPhone, pre-installed malware isn't much of a concern for iOS or the App Store. Many of the pre-installed harmful apps pop up after a malicious actor tricks phone makers into including their software on their devices. Android security team discovered two major malware campaigns hidden in pre-installed apps over the last three years, one called Chamois and the other called Triada. Together, they infected tens of millions of low-budget Android devices from the moment they were shipped out. Google did not specify which phones were affected. So this outlines another, another kind of issue with the, old and, with the whole Android ecosystem, and that is, yes, it does allow for cheaper phones to be created, uh, which, you know, that allows a lot more people to have smartphones. There's, you know, that that's a positive. But when you start getting into those low, low, low profit devices, you start cutting corner, corners, which means you either have worse security or you let these other, you know, app makers pay you to pre-install their apps on your devices. And oftentimes, apparently, those apps uh, are laced with malware. All right. Uh, I, I promised I would mention uh, TikTok and uh, the Apple versus Fortnite thing. So uh, 
actually, I'm hoping to bring some people on and do an interview on these because there's actually a lot of nuance to both of these stories. Uh, they're not black and white. They're not simple. But I at least want to, you know, address what they are and what's going on. Uh, the TikTok one is actually a little more straightforward, a little simpler. So TikTok, if you've not heard of it, uh, probably probably means you're over the age of 30. Uh, it's very popular with the young folks. In particular, it's very popular in Asia, uh, uh, India, China, um, those areas. But it's been traveling all around the world. Uh, and it it's a social media app which allows people to share these short videos. You know, so like any social media flash in the pan, you know, it could be some other app next year. But right now it's extremely popular. It is created by a company called, I think it's ByteDance. Uh, and they are owned by, I don't know if it's the Chinese government directly or some Chinese corporation, which... Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between those two things. And there have been some stories coming out recently about TikTok um, stealing user data and sending it back to China. And they were caught doing some of that. They said it was a complete mistake and a software bug, which they fixed. But there's been a lot of other sensational stories around this company and, you know, perhaps being a, a tool that spies, you know, for the Chinese government to the point where... Uh, a lot of government, U.S. government agencies have forbid their employees from having that app on their phones. And even the Trump administration issuing an executive order uh, saying that TikTok needs to be banned in the United States or the U.S. portion of the TikTok company must be sold off to a U.S. company. And in fact, there are rumors that both Microsoft and Oracle are looking to buy that. But in reality, it's, you know, there's there's a lot more to it. For one thing... Uh, who's to say that our government isn't doing the exact same thing? You know, perhaps our government is behind some of these really popular software development kits that they sell to other apps that collect all sorts of data. It's not like, it's not like U.S. intelligence agencies don't, you know, do mass surveillance as well. But I, you probably can say that, you know, if you're going to put this on a scale, that the, certainly the Chinese government is much more repressive and much more into mass surveillance and has much worse human rights violations, certainly privacy violations. We've been seeing that on the news. So... You know, it's not an equivalency, but it's also not a black and white issue. So anyway, uh, we may be talking about that. I'll see if I can't get somebody on uh, maybe from EFF or something to kind of dig into this a little deeper and get it, get at this from various angles. The other problem, of course, is that, you know, when, when you ban a social media thing, you're really, it's really censoring free speech. And, you know, you've got to be very well, cognizant of that and try not to do it. Honestly, you might come up with a different solution. I mean, imagine, you know, if the administration tried to ban Facebook or ban Twitter. So now let's get into uh, an even more complicated story and even perhaps a, a bigger story. And that is this huge legal battle that has erupted between Apple and a uh, big game company called Epic. And they're, in particular, their massively popular game called Fortnite. Uh, Fortnite is a really interesting game in that the game itself is free, but they have ways to purchase things through the app that allow you to do, you know, cosmetic things honestly aesthetic games within the game you can buy clothing for your character you can have your character do these fancy dances when they when they are victorious and <laughs> apparently that's a multi-billion dollar business so there uh, let me see if i can explain at least what's going on here without trying to be without trying to be too judgmental and again this is something that i'd love to talk to cory doctor about this uh, in fact i've read an article he just posted about this so i know exactly where he comes down on this uh, but let me at least try to present kind of the background here, what's going on as a, as a basis for uh, maybe a future interview. So Apple, the iPhone, has become this massive platform for applications. And in, in return for this, and Apple, you know, Apple provides its platform, you know, its billions of users, access to its billions of users, access to its app store, development tools, including software development kits that a lot of these apps and games build into their products, saves them time and effort, and also provides some, you know, some security. Uh, you know, all the apps and things that are put through the store are gone through some serious vetting processes. And for this, Apple charges all app makers, including game makers, a 30% cut of what they make. That includes not only the original purchase of the app, if it was a one-time purchase, you know, for the application, 30% of that. If it's a subscription service, it's 30% of the subscription. And if, like Fortnite, the app allows you to buy items, virtual items within the app, like, you know, maybe new levels for the game, 
or perhaps a pro version of the app instead of the light version of the app, they get 30% of that too. Now note, uh, Apple may have, may have been the first to do this, but everybody else does this too. The Google Play Store also charges 30%. The Microsoft App Store charges 30%. It's kind of the way things go. It's kind of like Visa and MasterCard, right? I mean, no matter who issues the Visa or the MasterCard, they all, you know, they all get a 2 or 3% cut of whatever you buy. Now, of course, 30% is a whole lot different than 2 or 3%, which, you know, that is something that we could talk about as, as, a, as a very different thing. But anyway, there is one important difference between the Google Play Store for Android and the Apple App Store for iOS. And that is, at least on the Google side, it's not enabled by default, but you can load apps and games that do not come from the Google Play Store. Uh, this is what's called sideloading. And if you go into the security settings and you disable the thing that says, you know, only allow official apps, then you can go to other stores and install other apps. And, but those things are not vetted by Google and you're, and you're taking the risk that they're okay. So Epic, this company that creates many games, actually, I think they're located here in, in, in the Raleigh Durham area has created this game called Fortnite, which made $1.8 billion last year and $2.4 billion the year before that has decided that they do not want to keep paying 30% to Apple. And so they approached Apple, I guess, I don't know, some months ago, uh, looking for a special deal. Now, Epic, uh, Apple says that, you know, Epic was looking to be treated specially, differently. Uh, Epic claims that, no, they, they were negotiating a special deal, but they wanted that special deal to be available to other app makers as well. And as you might expect, uh, Apple said no. Uh, why? Well, because they can. They they own the whole system. They uh, they are the the gatekeepers here. But you know, Apple claims that they you know they provide a lot of you know valuable benefit for this for that thirty percent that I talked about before, uh, and also it allows them to make sure that any app that gets on an iPhone has been scanned for malware and other you know nefarious practices. So. Uh, Epic claims that Apple, Apple's app store is a monopoly. Is it? Sorta. Uh, certainly on iOS phones it is, but not all phones are iOS. In fact, most phones on the planet are Android phones. So in one sense, they could just say, well, if you don't like that, then don't develop for iOS, you know, just go for Android. Now there's another term and I, term, and I've, I actually learned this one from Cory Doctor a long time ago, and it's called a monopsony. And let me, <laughs> let me just read the definition of that. A monopsony is a market condition in which there is only one buyer, the monopsonist. Like a monopoly, a monopsony also has imperfect market conditions. The difference between a monopoly and a monopsony is primarily in the difference between the controlling entities. A single buyer dominates a monopsonized market, while an individual seller controls the monopolized market. Monopsonists are common in areas where they supply most or all of the region's jobs. And I guess one of the best examples of it I saw of this was back in the old day when there was the the company store, you know, I owe, I owe my soul to the company store was in towns like mining towns or, or whatever, where the, the main employer in the entire town is one company. That company exerts a lot of power. And a lot of times what the company did back in those days, they would not give them money. They would give them basically company money that is only good at company stores which you could see being a problem. Uh, so uh, in that case, that's the monopsony part. So anyway, complicated terms. I want to read a couple of choice quotes here, though, from the, the CEO uh, of Epic and, and, you know, things to consider. So he says, this is a critical consideration of these 30% store fees. They come off the top before funding any developer costs. As a result, Apple and Google make more profit from most developers' games than the developers themselves. And he also notes in one of his, uh, another tweet, and I, I have not verified this, uh, but it's interesting. He says that Epic also notes that apps that offer real life goods and services like Uber, DoorDash, and StubHub are not required to use Apple's in-app purchase mechanism, which I guess means they can make money without paying the 30% cut. So I thought that was interesting. And then there's other weird things too, like uh, many, many years ago, the Kindle app, which is on you know, Amazon's uh, book reading app was asked to provide this 30% cut for all books purchased through the Kindle app. Um, that would be an in-app purchase. And I guess what they did is they said, no, 
So now while you can use a Kindle app and read Amazon bought books on your Kindle, you buy them from the Amazon store and they are downloaded to your Kindle app. So, you know, again, I don't see why Epic probably couldn't do similar things. Though I suppose since most people play the games on their phone, they want people to be able to make the purchases on their phone too. So anyway, this all came to a head just recently. On uh, August 13th, Epic decided to com- to blatantly flout these rules and they created their own app store uh, through their through their app, which was in direct violation of the terms that they, they agreed to. And interestingly, through their app store, they offered everything at a 20% discount. Not 30%. <laughs> they weren't giving all the profit back to Apple. They were still keeping a cut of that themselves. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, Apple, of course, immediately... Uh, responded by removing the Fortnite app from the App Store. And uh, let me quote Apple's response. They said, Epic Games took the unfortunate step of violating the App Store guidelines that were applied equally to every developer and designed to keep the store safe for our users. As a result, their Fortnite app has been removed from the store. Epic enabled a feature in its app which was not reviewed or approved by Apple. And they did so with the express intent of violating the App Store guidelines regarding in-app payments that apply to every developer who sells digital goods or services. Epic has had apps on the App Store for a decade, and they have benefited from the App Store ecosystem, including its tools, testing, and distribution that Apple provides to all developers. Epic agreed to the App Store terms and guidelines freely, and we're glad they've built such a successful business on the App Store. The fact that their business interests now lead them to push for a special arrangement does not change the fact that these guidelines create a level playing field for all developers and make the store safe for all users. We will make every effort to work with Epic to resolve these violations so they can return Fortnite to the App Store. Unquote. So basically, this is a game of chicken. Epic knew this was going to happen. They knew Apple was going to probably pull their app from the App Store, so they had lawsuits ready to go. And that exact same day, this is all happening on August 13th, they filed a lawsuit against both Apple and Google. They also had a whole PR campaign ready to go. So this, this was not, they saw this coming. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were picking a fight. The next day, uh, Sweeney tweeted again. He said, at the most basic level, we're fighting for the freedom of people who bought smartphones to install apps from sources of their choosing, the freedom for creators of apps to distribute them as they choose, and the freedom of both groups to do business directly, unquote. And that, I believe, is actually Cory Doctorow's position on this, is that we, you know, these things need to be open to everybody and the level playing field that he's looking for bypasses any control by Apple or Google. And then, and wrapping up the whole thing, uh, because Epic was obviously looking for a fight here, uh, the, the next step, and then this, again, I think Apple does this to all developers that do this, is if they are still not in compliance, uh, then the next thing they do is Apple yanks their developer license. And what that, what the practical implications are of that, for, uh, particularly for Epic, are huge. So what that really means is they can no longer make any more games, A, uh, the the tools and things that they provide to make new games are no longer available to them. Apple must digitally sign these apps, and if you revoke their license, that is no longer possible. But it's even worse because not only does Epic make a lot of money on its own games, it provides what's called uh, the Unreal Engine, which is uh, a gaming kind of a physics slash graphics engine that a lot of other games, not just from Epic, but a lot of other game makers use to make their games. So not only will this prevent Epic from making new games, this will prevent all other game makers who use the Unreal Engine from making any new versions of their games, or at least any new versions that rely on uh, newer versions of the Unreal Engine. So it has huge, huge impacts. And again, Epic is fully aware of this and is trying to use this as leverage. So anyway, try not to be too too judgmental. This is really a tricky subject. Uh, I would love to get Cory Doctorow or somebody like that on the show to debate this with. So uh, we'll see if we can make that happen. So that is all the news, and I told you there was a lot of it. Uh, Now let's get to the tip of the week, and this will be pretty simple. I've been trying lately to make you aware of some really cool security and or privacy tools. And today we're going to talk about one called Virus Total. So VirusTotal is a web-based service, though they make an application you can download as well. The basic idea is it's kind of it's like antivirus software, but it's really more of a one-off check of a file. Like, so let's, you know, let's say somebody sends you an email attachment and you don't, have an app, you don't have antivirus installed on your computer, or maybe you don't 
maybe you don't trust your antivirus to be 100% accurate, which is, you know, that's that happens. So you get this attachment and you're worried about it. Or maybe you actually even want to forward that you got it from somebody and you want to forward it to somebody else. But before you do, you want to make sure that that file is not infected. You can take that file and upload it to the VirusTotal website and it will scan it for you. And it's not just one scan. They actually have like 70 or so different antivirus scanning tools built in that all look at it. And what's really happening kind of behind the scenes is, is this is in conjunction with a lot of antivirus and security researchers uh, who are trying to improve their products. So it's a kind of a win-win. So you upload this thing, all these other guys get a chance, all these other tools get a chance to look at it and evaluate it and see if they think it's malicious or not. And oftentimes you'll, you'll get a mixed bag. You'll get some, some of the 70 things will say it's bad and some of the 70 things will say it's good. And it doesn't tell you what to do at that point. You have to make a decision based on you know, what the results are. But it's also a way for these companies to help improve their products. Also, interesting tool, uh, interesting aspect of this tool is you can give it uh, web addresses or URLs or URLs, universal, Re universal resource locators, the technical name for a web address. So if you're worried about going to a particular website, you can copy and paste the website address and paste it into VirusTotal as well. And it will, on your behalf, go to that website, load it up and look for any sort of malicious JavaScript or other malicious links on that site. Uh, or if it happens to be a known uh, phishing site or whatever, it can come back and tell you whether or not it thinks that website is a safe place for you to go to. As I said, you could actually download VirusTotal app locally if you want. You can also they make a browser extension for Firefox and Chrome and others uh, so that when you go, like you can right click on a link and it's just built right in. You can tell, you know, you can tell VirusTotal to scan that link right there in the browser. Uh, if you go to download a file, you can have VirusTotal look at that file for you. And finally, there's another way you could do it. You could actually email them as well. If you get if, so, if you get an email with an attachment and you're worried about the attachment, you can actually just forward that email to scan at virustotal.com. Uh, it'll scan it that way too and send you back a report. So there's a, there's a couple caveats to this. And one of them is privacy. So be aware that any file that you send or even any web address you send, multiple third parties uh, are now free to keep. And just to make this clear, let me, let me read a little snippet from uh, the privacy policy uh, on their webpage. It says, files and URLs sent to VirusTotal will be shared with antivirus vendors and security companies so as to help them in improving their services and products. We do this because we believe it will eventually lead to a safer internet and better end user protection. By default, any file or URL submitted to VirusTotal, which is detected by at least one scanner, is freely sent to all those scanners that do not detect the resource. Additionally, all files and URLs enter a private store that may be accessed by premium, in other words, uh, security and anti-malware companies, by premium virus total users so as to improve their security products and services, unquote. So bottom line there, just be aware that whatever you send them, you know, if it's a document that contains personal or private information or things like that, um, you know, hopefully you can uh, hope that these companies will not abuse that, but some human might actually see what that is. And the one other interesting ironic part about all of this is uh, a lot of people would claim that virus total is actually helping the bad guys because this all there's nothing preventing bad guys from doing this as well so if i'm going to create a new malware i might want to know if the antivirus companies out there will be able to detect it or not uh, so i might tweak it using this tool to see if i can slip it past them and if i could slip it past them then i know that i could slip it past all the antivirus tools that are out there so anyway like any tool, it can be used for good or for ill. Okay, wow. Man, so much stuff to get through. Thanks for hanging with me on that. Um, a lot of things I wanted to talk about. Usually I'll try to, you know, pare that down when there's a lot of stuff and just pick the good stuff. But there were so many things I thought were interesting this week. So uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, I did tease some big interviews coming up. Uh, they're not locked in yet, so I don't want to jinx anything. But uh, hopefully next week I'll have a really nice interview with somebody I've been trying to get for a long time. And there's another one in the works right after that. So definitely want to subscribe. You don't want to miss these. They're going to be really interesting. And a quick update on the fourth edition of the book. Uh, it's really getting close now. I just got the final proof copies of the book. I've got it like four days to review those and get them back. And at that point, it's a done deal. And the book will go to publishing, like actually printing. And I assume probably available almost immediately as a PDF off the AP, off the A-Press website and probably immediately as a Kindle download on Amazon as well. So it's coming up very soon. And because of that, uh, I really need to get in gear and get my uh, get my book launch contests going as well. Uh, I'm 
my current plan is to do a giveaway on Goodreads. And if you haven't signed up for Goodreads, that's pretty cool. It's uh, it's owned by Amazon, but it's kind of a book reader's social media. You can share what you're reading with friends and get uh, custom book recommendations, things like that. So you might want to check that out. And I may be doing a special uh, giveaway of my time through Patreon. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'll have details coming up soon. So stay tuned for that. And let's call it quits. <laughs> We've covered quite a bit. So stay safe out there. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope uh, if your children are back at school, they're hopefully doing it virtually. And if not, I hope I hope everyone, including the teachers and staff, are somehow maintaining social distancing and staying safe. Keep those masks honest when you have to go out. Don't go out unless you have to. And of course, as always, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Thanks.